Welcome back, one and all, to the Four Idle Hands podcast. It's our first of 2021, and we're, we're hitting a milestone today as well, Terry. We are. Uh, I can't really do the Hollywood chiller voice, but I would say it's season two coming this week. Yes. Which is which makes no sense if you're listening to this in March, but... Uh, uh, but, <laughs> but, but we've transmogrified uh, from a oh. shouty teenager into uh, a slightly more um, world-weary... Twentieth um, episode type. Uh, I, I, that sounds like a fair, a fair way to put it, actually. Yeah. So, um, but um, yeah, it's been been a fun. This is number twenty, uh, season two, sis. Uh, whatever you want to call it, series two, episode one. Uh, it's good to be back after the Christmas lull. Yeah. Uh, t- taking on twenty twenty one head first. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what? I bet you this time last year, you know, we hadn't even done a first episode at that point, and COVID was merely a. Um, um, you know, something in a bat rather than, you know, something that had, had changed the world. So we'll, we'll try not to go on about COVID too much in this episode. We've got uh, quite a few other things to discuss. We've got um, the, you know, news roundup. We've got snow. We're talking Weetabix. We're talking Zoom filters, parish councils, the start of the Six Nations. And we've got some music news in the way of... Uh, uh, a Mogwai uh, premiere that's on this weekend. Our centerpiece is Stina Tweedale um, from Honeyblood has uh, given us a good half hour of her time and we, we had a great interview with her a couple of weeks ago. And we've got some album reviews as well, Terry. Yes, we're going to slip through the Foo Fighters, the extremely mellow uh, middle age of the Sleaford Mall. <laughs> uh, and uh, Weezer. Um, they're okay, human. Their new album, and uh, which all have given a good listen to this week, and uh, we'll give our views on that shortly. Yeah, and there's lots of chewing of fat going on as well. But uh, before we get round to all that, uh, we need to talk about the elements. And uh, it's been pretty snowy and pretty cold in the northeast this uh, last couple of days, Terry. I, I think they, it definitely is. And for anybody who's watched the BBC, uh, I think it was on today. They had the hotel owner from the Altnahara Hotel. Um, on because it was minus uh, 21, <laughs> although I, I, I did notice when they put live from Goldsby on the screen, and Goldsby actually is nowhere near Al-Nahara, but that's, I guess, the BBC trying to figure out what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, minus 20 last night. I think the guy had no water, and um, but I guess it's pretty much norm, part of the course for Al-Nahara. Yeah, but he also he um, had no guests, so it wasn't such a problem, I guess. <laughs> no, no. Like most hotels, there was there was nobody there. So, which is a bit of a shame if you're a skier or a snowboarder or or a mountaineer and you can't head up to these hills. Yeah. Aberdeen last night. Aberdeen uh, was probably minus eight, nine, nine last right. night. Pretty, pretty, pretty chilly today. Although it's starting to get a bit slushy, and uh, it's very pretty, mind you. Yeah. It, it looks it looks quite nice actually, and it does thin out the traffic. You've got the COVID traffic lack of, and then you've got the weather. Uh, everyone's walking. Yeah. Well, what's the coldest you've been out? And is it maybe when you've been on one of your oil-related forays, or it, it, it was actually? And uh, a bit of a side. So I, I uh, worked uh, as a geologist, and we were working in uh, the south of Spain, in Seville, which is near close to Seville. Now people would think there's no oil in Seville, and it turns out <laughs> there's not. Um, so we were working there uh, all through December and January. It was probably the second job I went on. And our boss phoned us up to say, uh, and it was quite nice. It was probably 20 degrees every day. He said, I need you guys to go to uh, uh, the next job, but I need to go straight to it. Do not pass go or, or home. Uh, 
if you go to London and then you'll fly to, to Norway to this job. And we were all like, sounds good, pays the money. So we got on a flight, we went to Stavanger. We ended up at a place called Halmstad, I think, uh, which is right in the north of Norway. And we arrived at the airport in, uh, we had shorts. Flip-flops. We had, not quite flip-flops, no, I think we had shoes, but we were pretty much short sleeves. We had some, uh, we did have, um, we had sort of summer coveralls. Uh, somebody had, because it was quite, it was nice. And it was basically what you see, you know, car-sized snow, and we had to go into the harbour and then get a boat to the rig, and the rig went out to the Arctic Circle. And did you get a change of clothes? Uh, eventually, we managed to get a delivery of like, uh, well, we had we had jeans and stuff and t-shirts and things. And once you're on the rig, you weren't outside very much, and we got winter coveralls and stuff to live. So, so that was pretty. I was chilling. just thinking how much a pair of gloves would cost you in Norway. It's probably about five million kroner or something, is it? <laughs> probably. Um, so that was inside the Arctic Circle. And uh, when we came back, we came back to another place, which name I forget, but it was a NATO airbase. And again, it was just freezing cold, and, but it was just how, how it was. But uh, very pretty. Yeah, I think at minus 27 was the worst I was out in in, um, in Germany. Oh. But actually, the coldest I think I've ever felt was in, in uh, my hometown town of Monaghan when we were out um, right. on a very steep hill and we were, you know, sledging up and down it. And it, it was really, really cold and it rained. It was like black ice. And I can remember the, the hairs up my nose freezing, which was a really unpleasant experience and I really didn't care for that at all. Oh, God. I mean, I was laughing. It was at last night, the last couple of nights this week, there was a, uh, some of the Scottish football was off because of snow. And it was Livingston against Hamilton. Um, so the, the pitch that was frozen, but it was an all-weather pitch. Um, <laughs> which it was like someone called it the all-weather derby. So they couldn't clear the snow off the pitch. And I guess it was more of the fact that the teams probably couldn't get to the game. Yeah. But, uh, but I can I can remember playing rugby at school. You know when the ground is so hard, it's like yeah. rotted. It's rock solid. I remember playing rugby in that at school. You didn't you didn't stop. I mean, you, you still played. Um, and you ended up with knees being grazed and cuts and glute bruises and all the rest. But no one people were harder yes. then, Terry. I think so. Although I was reminded today, um, sorry again today, verse of my uh, school nickname, <laughs> and uh, uh, it came up today in a conversation at work about nicknames. And mine was uh, uh, I was extremely roughy, tufty, uh, second row rugby player, and my nickname was Hush, Hush Puppy. Puppy. <laughs> Purely because of the shoes, you know, yeah. the shoes were a thing. And my mum used to buy me these, and our uh, Mr. Reed, our uh, PE teacher, picked them up one day and went, What the F are these? sort of thing. <laughs> and hush, hush puppy stuck uh, ever since. And it was like, Pass the ball to puppy. Thinking, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we weren't very, we weren't very. Oh, my academy, first right, team, you, second yeah. I was too, yeah. So, so well, I mean, speaking fine. of things that are inappropriate, uh, I think Weetabix have kind of blotted their copybook uh, uh, this week, Terry. They've uh, tweeted the most unusual serving suggestion for their beloved product. Yeah, so from what I can gather, uh, they've, they've poured on, I believe, I have investigated this a bit further, warmed up baked beans onto Weetabix, which does sound pretty disgusting. Well, it looks disgusting. I mean... I mean, I can see, I mean, people have Weetabix with all kinds of oaty things and fruit and possibly so, but, but baked beans, that's a crossing of the streams in my in my Yeah, mind, I, I mean, it, you I know, to me, um, uh, Weetabix's taste is, it's, like, it's probably akin to eating chipboard 
So it's like sm smearing um, uh, baked beans uh, all over your uh, portion of chipboard. Not very often. But I, I, was it was it for a, a jokey thing or was it from a was it? I, did, I really couldn't. Was it Weetabix? Well, I suspect I it was really a bit of a joke. I mean, judging from certainly some of the replies on uh, Twitter, including one from the NHS, which was saying this is horrendous. Uh, don't don't try this at home, kind of thing, you know. Well, as I saw, was it was it Banquet Records had a had a picture of a twelve inch record with the beans in the they middle did. as well. Uh, yeah, so but uh, no, I wasn't tempted, but it did make me think. What was the most oddest thing? Well, you, you know, I, I think it also probably um, uh, shows you the power of advertising to a certain extent. I mean, I remember when I was a kid. Do you remember George Best uh, did a line of crisps when when we were kids, uh, Terry? <laughs> And there was only one, only yeah, one flavor you could get in Monaghan, which was tomato ketchup flavor. Now I don't like tomato ketchup, but I still bought them because of George. Yes, that, that, that would be fair enough, I suppose. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it is the part. I mean, these days, I mean, I, I bought a jar at the weekend of it was peanut butter, but it was what's the Kellogg's cereal, crunchy nut cornflakes, crunchy nut cornflakes, peanut butter, <laughs> and. Um, just, again, it was power of a power of advertising, and uh, it's just basically a very sweet pile of peanut butter, which you wouldn't have very much of actually. But the most disgusting thing I used to make on a regular basis was a Mars bar sandwich. Yeah. So you would get brown bread, uh, butter it, slice a Mars bar very very thinly, and then you basically layer the Mars bar across the sandwich. And that would be yeah, easy. see, like um, when, I, uh, when I was a kid, when we used to cross the border and uh, go up to Armagh for, for shopping for all the things you couldn't get in Monaghan, I remember always being amazed at the uh, amount of confectionery that you would get in, in a supermarket in Northern Ireland uh, and the Sweeties as well. I mean, it was like if you, if you were in, living in the Republic at the time, it was black and white. And the minute you went across the board, it was colour. <laughs> but, you, you know, that's taken right. it to extremes, maybe. But that, I never thought of that. That's, yeah, that's probably true, actually. I mean, because obviously you were kind of fairly downtrodden by down, <laughs> the border. So, yeah. I mean, that's one way of putting it, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, is that is that why they had to develop the kind of fake Tato crisps? Uh, no, well? stop that, it. That no, we we could that, be here all, all podcast if we go on about that. We better move it on, Terry. Uh, we've also had a bit of fun and games this week, uh, courtesy of uh, Zoom meetings, and uh, in particular, a Texan lawyer called Rod Ponton, who uh, unfortunately activated, or fortunately for us, I suppose, activated the uh, cap filter uh, during a court hearing, uh, and um, to hilarious effect, Terry. Well, yeah, it turns out it was his assistant's daughter or his child that did it. Um, apparently, she managed to turn on the filter. It was, it was on a laptop. It wasn't on a on a uh, like a, like a you know, phone with a filter like Instagram or, or Snapchat or anything sort of thing. But it was quite amusing. Where what was his line? I have not a yeah. cat, uh, which was very straightforward. But it looked. I mean, apart from that, and it's been on every single news story uh, multiple times now. And I kept thinking, would that have made the news? Oh, I think it would. It was yeah, just was so daft. And, and also, maybe. you know, his maybe. kind of gung-ho attitude that, you know, even though he was, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, um, taking part in, in a, a court hearing, he was prepared to go forward with it, uh, you know, saying, I am not a cat, I'm prepared to go forward with it. And the other thing I was thinking about last night uh, that made it even more funny in a way was, do you remember Beavis and Butthead? 
Do you remember do, the yeah, yeah. Um, the school principal, Principal McVicker? Yeah, well, you I need know, to YouTube yeah. him because vocally he's quite similar to this guy. So it's like uh, it's like the cat has been voiced by Principal McVicker. <laughs> it was a very cute little cat, actually. Um, I, I noticed the BBC reporter then decided to get in on the game and had a little sort of filter on his face, which is not particularly no. funny sort of thing. But uh, but it is interesting the the kind of the protocol on Zoom calls. And and one thing which I saw last week was you know obviously the, you see Matt Hancock and Grant Schnapps and all these guys with their bookshelves full of you know uh, nicely coiffured bookshelves with the all the dodgy books taken out sort of thing. And I saw this company in London who rent books to film and television productions, but they've also been renting and selling books to celebrities so they can fill up their bookshelves with exactly the right kind of books <laughs> they need to have about you know health and well-being and because um, because nobody has. I haven't seen anybody with like record shelves or anything. Maybe you know, maybe they're in different rooms or something. But I would have thought that's quite a good. But then I guess people might be embarrassed. Well, about they could be uh, embarrassed about their book collection. I mean, imagine it was Boris Johnson's uh, uh, sort of home office, and he was being interviewed. Well, there'd be books in the background about how to make up your mind, or 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 maybe uh, <laughs> uh, distance parenting techniques, that kind of thing. That, that, that could be good. And actually, speaking of Boris, I was watching the uh, Celebrity Home Chef program this week with his sister on it, uh, Rachel. And um, I mean, she's certainly more pleasant than Boris, uh, but she certainly gets her hair and dress sense from, from her brother. Yeah, and not moving too far away yeah. because we're still talking about politics. Um, it, it, we can't possibly turn up the opportunity to uh, mention Hanforth Parish Council and uh, the... Um, uh, calamitous um, council meeting that was held once again over Zoom, I guess. Yeah, and I'm sure it's not the first time it's happened, but it was very officious. And obviously, um, some of the uh, the person, the, the parishioners, I guess that's what they were, um, were were taking a lot of shouting going on and you know procedures and uh, obviously you know this was the second story in a week on Zoom with where it, where it made the news and what was the lady's uh, name? Jack, Jackie Weaver. And she was a bit. Yes, and she was claimed that this wasn't a legal meeting and all the rest yeah. sort of thing. So, uh, um, I think I just proved that people people like even in local sort of local government they like to have their they do. Their well, there was a, a lot of antipathy amongst them, and and also some great lines as well. I mean, the "you have no authority" is like something out of uh, the first Robocop, <laughs> like something to be shouted before you get riddled <laughs> to death. And and the other and the other good ones. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. <laughs> I mean, I was watching uh, what days today. It was whatever day it was a Tuesday. First minister's questions uh, in Scotland, and you know, it's not far <laughs> from that. Actually, a lot, of, a lot of sniping going on, and um, you know, you got they all get to have their say, and um, it's it's really not far from the parish council, actually. So, but. Uh, um, and I, and I was chatting to my mum and she was telling me about some of the meetings she used to be in with Red Cross. She was involved with the Red Cross in Tyrone and um, she said people thought, I mean, sometimes it was life and death potentially, but, you know, a lot of time it was just who's going to do the rota yeah. for this, that and the other. And um, yeah, so but, uh, a lot of self-importance. Uh, uh, indeed. Sure. And speaking of self-importance, uh, there's a lot. We've had uh, the kickoff to the Six Nations competition at the weekend then, weekend there, Terry, and it, it, it's a, a, a you know always a question of joy and tears the first weekend. If your team gets beaten, uh, you know, the 
rest of the tournament to agonise over. And if your team wins, it's a great shot in the arm like it was for Scotland. Yeah, I think my weekend uh, was a bit like COVID. It was don't care, happy, <laughs> sad. Um, so France for Italy, great. Scotland, fantastic. I mean, we were we were talking about this today, and, and I, I mean, it's, it's, it's fair to say England didn't have their their best team out, and some of their best players. I think England picked them on reputation because because Farrell and Vinopolo they haven't really played much, but Scotland played. You can't take anyway. Scotland played fantastic as well. And then obviously Ireland kind of blew it on. Um, on yeah, Sunday, yeah. Peter O'Mahony didn't exactly cover himself in glory, uh, but I mean the rest of the team played okay. Uh, but uh, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it's um, really difficult, uh, I think, to to see them winning the championship now. I mean, they've, they've uh, lost to uh, possibly one of the weaker teams in, in Wales. Really, still haven't got their act together and could easily have been beaten. Yeah, I think so. I, mean, I think I mean England have got. Italy this weekend, so that's obviously a guaranteed three-pointer. Scotland are home to Wales, so Scotland will win and suddenly be Grand Slam contenders. And then it's Ireland-France on Sunday with the French making a few comments about Johnny Sexton's yeah. um, head injury, um, which they've apologised about now, apparently, but because um, he's had that in the past, apparently. And um, maybe and, and Mahoney got a three-game ban from that as well, so he can only play, I think, in the last game yeah. of the season. Now, so. Um, Ireland have got uh, plenty of options uh, in the back row so uh, you know his loss for the other games isn't going to be uh, critical I would say but uh, you know he, he should have been playing with a bit more nous the other day I mean just racing into a rock like that was daft he's quite yeah he could be quite he's not, I wouldn't say he's a dirty player he's quite an aggressive player but but the one thing that was obviously sad for the whole tournament was obviously the lack of fans I think the Six Nations is certainly you know like been to games at Murrayfield or or, or or even Twickenham, you know, it's the, the the mixing of the fans is always great, and um, there's never, you know, there's never, you know, home and away fans mixing. We, we, you wouldn't see that in football, would you at all? So, I think that's a real shame. That's obviously not going to happen at all this year. And just the flip side of that, actually, it's interesting that the US, not the US, the Australian Open tennis is going on, and. Despite them allowing fans, they haven't had as yeah, many. Yeah, uh, that's right. People are are, yeah. are staying away. I mean, I'm, I'm sure if the Six Nations games were were attended, I, I don't think they would have the same issue with it. Really, I think people would um, brave both the elements uh, and um, you, you, you know turn up in numbers um, for uh, what what is a great kind of social occasion. I don't really think that uh, tennis tournaments have got quite the same cachet in that respect. No, no, probably not. Probably, that's probably fair enough. But um, and I think even if they do have rugby back in the autumn, it's probably still going to be some sort of form of distance sort of thing. But uh, I did, I did uh, in the half time in the um, Ireland Wales game, uh, recreate that uh, match stadium atmosphere uh, by standing outside in the back garden, throwing <laughs> in a sucking stick. Um, so, so, the, but the good thing yeah. was there's no queue at the toilets. Uh, the beers were the beer was a lot cheaper. I mean, I think it was six. Uh, and you didn't, and you didn't have a Welshman roaring in your ear. No, and the steak pies were uh, infinitely better actually. So, but yeah, so there we go. But I'm looking forward to this weekend. Actually, it should be another cracking series of games. And uh, um, but uh, yeah, yeah good. Look forward to that. Uh, well, you, you know, we uh, set up this podcast partly as a kind of what's on in the northeast kind of thing, and you know, we've been devoid of uh, events for most of. Uh, uh, the year, Terry, but uh, we've got a good one coming up this weekend. Mogwai have a new album coming out uh, next Friday, and they are premiering a um, live performance they recorded in the tramway in Glasgow this very Saturday, uh, Saturday the 13th. 
Yeah, so, I mean, Mogwai, first thing comes to my head when you say Mogwai is loudness. Um, I was trying to think when I last saw them, and actually I was reminded today, I think it was, they played the music hall for it was HMT. Hall, it was HMT. HMT, and it was very loud in there. And um, but but you've listened. Yeah, to yeah, I have, yeah. Stuff, I mean, I, I was at that gig yeah. uh, too before we go on to the new stuff, and uh, it was funny because my yeah. original ticket for it was uh, the very back row of the uh, the upper circle, and I was thinking that's okay. It's quite a long way from the stage; it won't be so loud. And then uh, somebody came into the the shop uh, the day of the gig saying they couldn't go. Here's a couple of tickets, so uh, I couldn't get shot on my own. Uh, so I um, decided I oh, will move up a bit, and we we ended up in the sixth row, right beside one of the oh. stacks. Oh, wow. I mean, for um, uh, you, you know some of the older stuff. I mean, it really was wincingly loud at times. Yeah, what's I what's the what's the lightest gig you've ever oh, been to? Um, uh, Motorhead at like... um, Daily Mount Park. Uh, the, it was an outdoor gig. Um, uh, Black Sabbath with wow. Ian Gillen were the headliners. It was the Brian Robertson um, Motorhead lineup, and they had speakers underneath the stage. And actually, I heard somebody talking about this tour recently. And uh, apparently, the PA was under the stage, but the uh, the sort of green room for all of the musicians and hangers on was directly behind it. And apparently, people couldn't even stand it in there. You know, even though the sound was going the opposite direction, it was so loud. You, you just saw people peeling away wow. from uh, from the front of the stage. How about you? Um, well, well for, I was thinking about this, and I've seen Motorhead. In, in fact, I've been to the, the Motorhead gig that was on that record last year in Belfast. And when, when you, I remember, you know, you would be at the front of the stage. You were actually touching the stage. There wasn't any of this kind of gap or safety gap. But I must have been loud. I can't remember. But the most recent one that was extremely loud was a band you wouldn't expect. Actually, oh, yeah. it was Churches, and they played in the music hall. Uh, it must have been four years ago, I think it was, maybe five years ago, on their sort of last album, but one tour. And I remember when they started, the bass was unbelievable. It was so loud, and I ended up going to the front of the stage. So you were, it makes sense. You were actually kind of behind the speakers because the speakers were hanging from the ceiling. So you were, you know, you weren't feeling the full force because like it was just the bass was just going right through you um and i think after about 20 minutes they kind of had a second thought about <laughs> it and they turned the volume down a little bit but that was that was yeah. certainly one but I, when it comes to this when it comes to this mobile uh, uh, stream you can of course turn the volume down yourself uh, the the album uh, that's coming out is as the love continues and uh what i've heard of it in terms of the um couple of tracks that they were uh, having as little sort of tasters it's definitely slightly more, um, uh, well, it, it, it's less uncompromising, the music. You know, there, there's, I wouldn't go as far as to call it commercial as such, but there, there are elements of that kind of soft electronica kind of thing that they've been doing on uh, some of their soundtrack albums. And possibly they've spotted a wee bit of a gap in the market there and they're um, uh, hoping to widen their appeal with, with this album. But uh, it'll be an interesting listen, I'm sure. Okay, I assume the album's been recorded yes. last year, so yes, in lockdown, probably, I would imagine. Yeah, I think so. Um, another event um, of what's not on in Aberdeen, but there is something on, actually. And again, this kind of a bit sad because it throws back to last year. Um, when we saw we saw David Holmes DJ yes. in the Lemon Tree. Um, and in fact, I found the other day the uh, 
file we got yeah. of his music. Remember, he did a it was like a three gig three gigabyte zip file of all the tunes he did, which I started listening to. Uh, but the Granite Noir Festival is on in Aberdeen at the end of the month. Um, so it's, it's a free event. I, I confirmed that yesterday. So all the events are going to be obviously streamed online. There's Ian Rankin there's a lot of, over the sort of Thursday through to Sunday. And if you go through the Aberdeen, um, just type in Granite Noir on your bright search uh, machine and you'll find links to watch it uh, for free. So I think that's probably Good. well worth doing. Uh, and uh, somebody who's been busy over the and, uh, lockdown with various um, kind of musical and streaming projects is uh, Honeyblood's uh, Stina Tweeddale. We spoke to her at some length and uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, here's the interview. Uh, we're delighted to be joined today by Stina Tweeddale of Honeyblood. Stina, you're very welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. No, well, thanks for having you. Uh, it's hard, kind of hard to know where to start when interviewing um, in um, uh, Easy Win a wee bit and go right back to the beginning. And you could tell us a wee bit about how you got interested in making music and who were your early inspirations in doing so. Yeah, um, I feel like I've just been doing music forever now. Um, I mean, I've been kind of performing since childhood really my dad's a musician um and is actually a guitar player which is why i kind of took up the guitar as the instrument i really really wanted to play the trumpet at school that was my thing i was like the trumpet is to me cooler than the guitar um <laughs> but i they gave you like a test so they gave you like a trumpet to have a go of and i couldn't make any notes out of it so they're like okay this instrument's not for you and um, guitar seemed easier, so that's why I went for guitar in the end. Um, okay. And, um, yeah. You've listened to um, growing up? Um, so the, the usual kind of like standard guitar bands, I guess, at that era of when I was a kid. So, um, I mean, I was obsessed with collecting copies of the enemy i was so into all of that and the new music radar but as a child um i was kind of into a lot of riot girl stuff and it was very inspirational obviously for me to see women play the guitar because there wasn't that many really but there was if you look for it this is the thing i just feel like they maybe weren't super mainstream the era that i was growing up i kind of missed it because the riot girl stuff is like just before my time um, and the kind of time that I grew up was very much like the kind of lads, British lads uh, bands, I think. So there wasn't actually that many women, I think, that really were standing out. Um, but I was obsessed with going to local gigs. So I used to like sneak in to like gigs, um, like local bands. But I obviously think that they were like the most superstar thing that I'd ever seen. Um, and it was actually like there was a lot of female musicians on the scene that still that still play today and kind of know about um, that uh, kind of sparked my interest in actually doing it myself. So I don't know if you guys know Donna. Um, she used to be in a band called Amplifico. Okay. okay yeah. um, and kind of like obviously Katie Tunstall and all those kind of like were in the scene in Edinburgh at that point. So like all of that stuff was like a big deal for me because it was like something that I could see and was sort of tangible and I could go to the gig and they were from my town and they played 
music and they sang and they wrote the songs and this was like a big deal for me you wrote your own songs so um so yeah that's kind of like what got me into it and I actually just um decided to join a band when I went to uni um and um I gave up playing the guitar and became a singer in a band and didn't actually write write the music I just wrote the lyrics and the melody um in a band called Boycotts and um I guess that gave me my first taste of doing it kind of properly. Uh, okay. But um, I very much loved being in a band and growing, and I'm still so um, close to every member of that band. But there was a there came a point where I was just like, this is not enough for me, and um, that's when I started writing fully the songs myself. And um, honey blood thing came from there and then since then i guess i've had like what you would consider to be a professional career in music <laughs> i guess that's, well, that's cool. if i can be yeah. so bold and say that so um so yeah that's kind of like um the history of how i got there um and i guess made three albums working on the fourth one um yeah and, and the, the 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 first album, the first Honey Blood album, was recorded in twenty thirteen. Mm-hmm. In uh, apparently, it just ten days to record the whole thing. Is that right? It took ten days to record it. Yes, um, we worked. We were there for just over two weeks, and we took the weekend off. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> but um, we worked with Peter Katis in his whole his studio, which is inside his amazing house called Tarquin Studios um, and because he had a really good relationship um, with Fat Cat who was our label and you know he's done a whole bunch of bands that kind of followed that um, path so he did We Were Promised Jetpacks, he did The Twilight Sad and he did Frightened Rabbit um, but he's also did kind of like The National and Interpol and a whole bunch of other kind of cool um, bands of that era um, so yeah, it was it was a very nice introduction to recording properly with him. I feel like I was very spoiled um, in my first experience. Actually, now done so many different types of recording, and um, I'm so glad that that was the first one. Uh, okay. And it's got it, it. It has a great sort of live sound to it, uh, Stina. That that album. I mean, uh, you'd mentioned the kind of Riot Girl thing a bit earlier. Was was that you know something you were trying to capture the 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 liveness of it? Yes, most of that album was recorded live and not to click, which um, Mm. is cool because obviously there's only two people playing uh, most of the time. So and we had this natural chemistry that meant that we were able to play, um, you know, and and in the recording, actually recording, we would look at each other while recording. So it was like we were playing completely live. So the, the songs kind of like have this movement in them that I feel like a lot of people kind of like don't, record that way anymore because they're like well you have to put it to click because it has to be correct and you know we need to slice it up in the computer and it's much easier and it is easier but um it was actually peter's idea to do it as close to the idea of um live sounding that it it can be i actually feel like that record is very um soft and sort of like to me, it sounds like it's sort of shoegaze vibe to it rather than the the Riot Girl vibe, which maybe the song essence comes from a lot of them. But um, the sound wise is a bit more shoegaze, which I'm into as well. So it's like all these sort of different 
influences that that cross over but if you compare that to the next record that i made it's like the sonically i feel like they're super different yeah because the next record obviously i think it's a bit more of a it's a bit more of a pop not sort of pop album but it's a bit more pop sensibility with some great hooks i mean how did that process change between the first and the second album just with experience or yeah better at doing it yeah experience absolutely like um i wanted it to be um finessed in a way so like i like i like the idea of the lo-fi sort of like vibe and like kind of we got called slacker rock for so long and like that's that's (laughs) cool but like i feel like that record you could is me sort of trying to develop into a sort of more shiny sound i guess um and obviously it was recorded differently and essentially having 50 percent of the musicianship be a different person kind of like makes it change Um, and also having a collaborator who's different and has different input and experience and style and 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 that all changes um the kind of way that I would write a lot of the times I would write to complement the person who I'm playing with so um the songs take a complete different shape which I think looking back on it is cool because although they sound super different and especially if anyone has seen us live um, throughout the history of the band I think it's kind of cool because it means the songs are so like they they kind of like morph over time Um, so I actually think although it's it's kind of a strange um, history to have as as being the only um, consistent member of your own band but um, I think it's it's kind of worked out for the best in a way (laughs) Well, that's a good point. So, I mean, obviously, going to the third album now, which is in plain sight, which is a much more of a, I mean, I listened to that this morning, actually, again, and it's a very, I must say, glam pop sound, but it's a very full sound on it. But that essentially was a, a solo album almost, wasn't it? I mean, it was solo, it was, it was your album, but I mean, Holy Blood was down to, down to you, basically. Is that right? Or? Yeah, I mean, I would probably say that um, being like the kind of songwriter of every single record it feels like no different the way that I've kind of made them but it's definitely um the one that had least input from um well Debbie obviously was not in the picture when the album was the songs were written but obviously she had a big input in the recording of the songs so um what's what's your favorite song on that album by the way or do you have one? Uh, Maybe not it's one. so hard when people ask you what your favorite, your <laughs> own favorite songs are. Um, no, I probably um, when I wrote it, I really enjoy. Well, they're all sort of like I like them for different reasons. Um, my favorite song that I'm most proud of on the record is the song "Touch" because I feel like I learned something from that song. So, like um, the <laughs> that song, um, the actual synth part because I was obviously experimenting with a lot more synths and electronic sounds on that record than I have ever done before um, and the synth part that I made actually made it to the final recording so to me it feels like the most authentic one in a way um, but lyrically I like the Tarantella I think I'm very proud of that song and how I forged that song so can I? There's two, well, there's two for 
I'll say no, I'd written down Touch and Third Degree was my favourite songs of that album. So um so at that time you switched to Marathon Artist, which I think is a sort of a bigger international roster, you know, including Courtney Barnett. Did that did that open up any doors internationally for you or anything that you kinda of couldn't have done before or um you played South by Southwest, haven't you, before? I have, stuff, so. yeah. And I've done a lot of American touring, to be honest, but we didn't do that much in the last um, the last campaign, mostly because nothing to do with the label. I actually, um, my agent decided um, to quit the business. And I had had this agent for a very long time, and he's a good friend and, and um, a nice man and just decided to quit the business and I actually was without a um, US agent when the album came out because he quit like very unexpectedly so we didn't do like a full um, tour of America like we usually would for that record but I'm hoping that we can obviously well now and now we can't obviously (laughs) but um, I'm hoping that we can go back in the, the future Okay. So when you were touring the States, was it, was it a lot of student venues or was it more mainstream sort of stuff or what was it? Um, I mean, we've done, we do always the same sort of route. I don't, I wouldn't say it's probably like student venues. I'm not really sure. Like we do a mm. lot of like, they have this thing where like in the UK we have like the radio, right? So we have like BBC Six mm. Music, blah blah, all that sort of thing. But over there, their radio is exceptionally regional. So like you hit all the kind of like, and it's all student run. So like you hit all the kind of yeah. um, local radio student run, and they're all excellent. Also, so like it's very cool. Sort of like they always play like they're only pandering to like their own little neighborhood um, listening. So like it usually they have more freedom as to what they can play, which I really enjoy about America. That's I think that's cool. Yeah. Um, that's cool because the first time I saw Frightened Rabbit was in Austin, Texas, uh-huh. and a friend took me, and I didn't even realize they were Scottish. <laughs> um, I mean, so... you, you can you can be kind of um, you you can be a what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for here? You can you can understand why you may think that. To be honest, um, yeah. Well, he, he t- I was in Houston, so I did some work in Houston, and he said we're going to go to Austin, which is not far for them. And for me, it was like the other side of the world. <laughs> And uh, we drove to see this band, and then I realised once he opened his mouth, he was Scottish. And I thought, "Who's this band?" Right, I'd never heard of them before. And the place was like a three thousand people, students standing up. And I thought, "Wow, that was, that was a good audience last day." So, yeah, uh, I enjoyed that last day. So, um, so one thing, I mean, obviously, COVID. I mean, we have to bring it up, I guess. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a it's affected everybody's in the last year, and obviously, as part of that, you know, you did the streaming gigs from your studio and then from yes. home. Um, and then you've moved on to the Patreon feed now. So what, what prompted you to kind of start the Patreon feed? And I guess that gives you a different way to connect to your fans. I it guess. does. It's been really interesting because it's like, it's kind of like very acute um, market research, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you've got literally like your, you know, fan base telling you exactly what they want from you. And usually we kind of like make the thing and then we were like, work out how we pr- present it to um, the fans. So this is like the opposite way. Like, it's been kind of cool. Like, I, so I had a conversation with my manager because, you know, I, I, I set up the Patreon to write an EP that I was going to self-release, which I am going to do still. Yep. Um, 
<laughs> and the the patrons decided all of the kind of like main defining artistic qualities of the records so to, to the extreme so as to like what instruments were used on it what sounds what feel the songs were to have um to the actual track listing to the titles of things like real like artistic decisions that have quite a, a big impact on the perception and the art of the artist so i kind of feel like i gave free range here <laughs> um, <laughs> well as a as a patron it's been great fun to do that um and certainly i don't think without covid that but I would have never seen anything like that before. Yeah. Um, but it, it does give you. But are, are you? Is it sometimes a bit strange what what people are interested in? Because I you know you ask for suggestions and folk are interested in all kinds of stuff that maybe you wouldn't have thought of before. So much. So like, yeah. For me, I feel like, I mean, you probably heard me where I'm like, do you really want to know about this? Is this not really boring? <laughs> 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 you know, people are like, yeah, because no one would ever think to tell us about this. Is a kind of vibe I'm getting. Um, when I when I talk yeah. about kind of like the the breakdown of how even like how the recording works or how we go about sort of like working out how we're going to release something and and all the decisions that get made and maybe like how we even what 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 the song sounds like between mixes before it goes to mastering how it sounds different when it comes back like to me that's kind of tedious in a way but i feel like i'm not the one who doesn't know about that so maybe that it is interesting so that's one of the things that i've kind of like maybe taken for granted before that now my eyes have been opened up that that's actually interesting to someone else yeah so i mean the the ep obviously you set it up to start which i guess is going to be released soon at some point in the future did that end up like you thought it might or did it go in a different direction to what you thought because of the people and people's input and so on um i didn't have any um kind of idea of what it was going to end up like i don't think at the beginning okay. i thought maybe it would my the choices of songs possibly i think are a bit different i think um some stuff that um like well i did think that um this song i put a demo up and i thought that it would um make it to the ep i put a song up like at the very end like a demo called risk and i was like okay this is like synth heavy like i don't know if it'll work on a honeybud record but i really love this song so i just kind of gave it to the patrons to decide what they wanted to do with it and everyone kind of mm. like was like oh this is great but we want to hear this mm. on the Honeyblood record and it's like thinking about the future and like actually like putting some thought into like what would this sound like with live drums what would this sound like with guitars and bass instead of it being like what it is at the moment it was like what what could that then be in the future and I thought that was super cool that was like one of the, my favorite moments of the whole kind of process was that they were they, as a collective kind of thinking about the next the future of it in a way yeah I, I kind of wondered if you were if you were sitting there in your studio going, oh damn, what they thought. Oh, no, you know, I didn't really want to go that way or or whatever. And, um, but that's that's good to hear. But and how did you differentiate between sort of doing that in the solo EP and of course you're obviously recording Honeyblood Four at the same time. 
is that quite an easy split or is it sort of a... yeah i mean so I, i'm obviously going to release the ep on my own label which is ice blink luck with um robert kilpatrick who is um well known as um working at the scottish music industry association so um he is <laughs> he won't he won't be embarrassed me saying this but he literally is my biggest fan which i think is so cute that we have a, a music company together now that <laughs> i let oh, him cool. um hear it and the ep obviously and spoke to him about the difference between the two and he said if he could describe the difference he thinks that in the ep i've been able to show a bit more vulnerability and maybe like a softer side that maybe gets in kind of eclipsed with Honeyblood, you know, every, everyone kind of thinks it's Honeyblood in this way of, I mean, there are kind of like softer sides to each record and maybe like if you're a fan of my music, then you would know that. But most people would think of me as being like fast paced, punky, sort of like even bratty in the music that I make and not so much softer and, and more okay. vulnerable, which I think sides of this EP definitely have let me show like the the sadder song, the sadder the song it seemed to get the most positive reaction. Weirdly, so um, <laughs> I don't know what that says about the time we're living in. But... Indeed, it, well, it might be. I mean, pe- yeah, I mean, people do listen to a lot of sad music, and you know, there's a lot of sad Scottish music around. That, that, that's that's very true. So, but and one, you know, I mean, I was thinking this. I mean, so say Honey Blood was four. I'm not putting words in your mouth. Say it was finished like end of March, for example. Would you think twice about releasing it this year because of the COVID and the, the touring possibly or, or delay it? Or... Yeah, so I did think about that. Um, and obviously it's something that we do have to think about. Um, so mm. I said, and I was quite open on Patreon and um, I've mm. had big talks with my management and my team about it. And um, we just think that, I do, I do think that the the fourth album is going to be the best album I've ever made. I wouldn't I wouldn't continue to make albums if I didn't think the next one was going to be the best one I've ever made, right? That's just like how I think about it. But yeah. I don't want to compromise the record by not being able to tour it because essentially Honeyblood is a live experience in a way that I've structured my career on and and love it, you know, like playing live and being able to connect with my audience in that way. So I would be really inclined to hold on to a record without being able to give that opportunity. Unfortunately, we have absolutely no idea when um, that's going to no. come back. And um, although I've been maybe a little bit moany on the internet about <laughs> how much I miss gigs, maybe not too super extreme um but yeah it's like a deep cut that's um hurting especially when you've got um material that you know should really see the light of day um but i just i think my personal view is that i need to hold on to that until i can do it justice or there's no point in making you know the record i'm most proud of and and not giving it the the right chance to live its full life in a way yeah and and yeah. um really you, you know moving on uh, i suppose uh, to you know the uh logistical problems of of touring um uh you know once you've got your um your, your planned date for the album release and you're trying to uh, tie in uh tours with it 
it's probably quite difficult to do it from a standing start. I mean, myself and Terry were talking about uh, live sound engineers and, and um, road crew and the like, and how, you know, a lot of those staff are shared by, you know, um, many musicians. And, you know, this could be a bit of a headache, obviously, coordinating the availability of people and indeed of the venues when it comes to the end of lockdown and, and uh, live music starting again. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this absolutely gives me the fear. I'm, I'm not joking. Um, so the, the infrastructure of the entire live scene has been completely decimated, in my opinion. And um, the fact that we're going to see an absolute crumble in the next couple of months. I mean, it's been, I, I'm, a mem- I'm a patron of the MBT, so I keep kind of up to date on what's happening on the venue side. But a lot of venues are literally at breaking point because they were at breaking point anyway at the beginning and um, before any of this kicked off plus a lot of the bands make generate their um, majority of their income from touring and that doesn't even just mean the fees that they get paid but like when you think about your prs um as a songwriter as well that's kind of like what keeps you ticking over a lot of the time um but yeah you're right i share every single member of my team with like four of other bands um so obviously my engineer my tour manager and also my bandmates so um as where you're probably aware debbie drums is in another band and um, that also is in america which makes that logistically a nightmare clearly and um also anna is in a, another band called lines in manchester so I'm sure that once the the restrictions are lifted, everybody else, everybody's going to have the same idea, which is let's book a tour. Now, how do you decide who gets to book that specific date in which venue, um, at what time, and um, and who gets who the crew? It's it's obviously going to be the and it makes sense, especially for like the people that I employ as freelancers that they're going to go with the biggest paying um, bands. Yeah. And, um, you know, my, my tour manager works with Mogwai and Bill and Sebastian. And um, that, to me, makes more sense for him to, to you know, they, it's first dibs sort of thing. And I'm sure that'll be the same with venues. One of the things I'm quite concerned about is that I saw, and and I, I'm not saying that this is a, a bad thing i think it's actually like comes from a good place but it maybe hasn't been thought about in a deeper um on a deeper level is like a band like um i saw biffy clyro were going to do academies they they set up here to do academies yeah. now as a fan you're going to be like oh my god we need to go to this because that's going to be absolutely insane but they play stadiums so <laughs> They can play stadiums. So what they're doing is they will actually be cutting um, completely those tour dates for the band that can play academies. They're going to be taking those out of the calendar, which means that they'll then be pushed back and everybody else will be pushed back. And we can't sort of kickstart our own industry until that's over. Um, So that's one of the things that I kind of like have thought about um, as a kind of net... I don't want to say a negative thing, but maybe yeah. the repercussions of that haven't really been thought about on the little guy, yeah. you know. Um, and the same for me, if I was, say, I, I did think about doing like a run in kind of like 100 cap venues or whatever for 
if I was to do that with Honey Blood, that would be a super exciting show and I would love to do that. But then if a band who maybe that's their cap venue, it may be difficult for them because then they're not going to be able to continue their journey. So it's about maybe looking after each other in the community and not just kind of like kickstarting our own business, but like we need it. We need the yeah. infrastructure to stay alive pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I never thought of that. I see with Biffy Claro. Yeah. But then maybe, maybe the likes of, well, I mean, the Foo Fighters, for example, they were due to be touring Europe this year. Maybe they won't come to Europe because of, Restrictions, so that gives an opportunity totally. for somebody. I don't know. Well, I hope yeah. they do because I'm playing that yeah. gig. So, like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Let's hope that still goes ahead. Because so, that's in Valencia, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I'm I'm really at this point. Um, I mean, we're in January now. Um, I would be very surprised if that does go ahead. I have every you know fingers and toes crossed for it, um, because I don't know if it if they have the option to reschedule it to another year i think that that seems extreme but um yeah we don't know i yeah. don't know if that will happen and obviously we have the over the looming um double whammy problem of brexit when it comes to touring in europe so there's a whole bunch of other things to to kind of like obstacles to come past one one at a time baby steps yeah. at the moment yeah okay. i mean you need to go to valencia is the most unbelievable place by the way um, and the venue that where the concert was going to be is in this hugely science yeah, fiction park. Yeah, I a picture of it, and it looks like a spaceship. I think they're they're going to build like some sort yeah. of like outdoor um, stage right next to it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an art gallery. Then there's a, a like what else is a all kinds of sea sea life places around there as well. So, um, so on the Brexit thing, I mean that that is going to be a nice little nightmare. Yes, in short, yes. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no way out of it. Uh, well, I don't think so. Uh, not at the moment. And certainly, if you'd been watching the part of, uh, Parliament, uh, uh, the, the urgent question that was um, raised right about lunchtime, yeah. there was about about five people in the House of Commons. So, I mean, I know there are restrictions in terms of people being able to travel uh, into uh, Parliament to take part in debates. But to me, it showed us across the board in, in resolving this. And... It is problematic for uh, for bands. I mean, Stina, you can tell us all about it in a minute, but uh, I can tell you as somebody who imports stuff at the moment um, that, uh, you know, the amount of red tape uh, has increased exponentially and you've got all these things like, you know, if you want to sell merchandise um, at your uh, European gigs, then you've got to have an EO or I number and you can't get that unless you're VAT registered. So for... For very small bands who are maybe you know going on a first tour, it's going to be really difficult for them to make it viable. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely um, a nightmare to be honest. Um, I've toured Europe once before. Um, we actually didn't use it, kind of like could go back as a territory, but I do a lot of festivals. So when you think about popping over, just you know to wherever to just play like a couple of festivals a year i mean it just doesn't seem like that in itself is going to be viable anymore like it feels like that's that's the thing of the past now and i i also think maybe it's it's good in a way because obviously it may give um more european acts more space in their own 
countries which might be kind of cool so like you know you can't you can't fly over that trendy van from the uk or whatever but like you can get someone local maybe that's kind of cool in the wider aspect of stuff like but um on a personal note it's bad for me obviously (laughs) but maybe it'll be good for like like, local infrastructure and music yeah, that's true, obviously. What's your, just for address, what would be your, what's the favourite place you've ever played in? Apart from Aberdeen. <laughs> I actually, I actually love the Lemon Tree so much. It's one of my favourite places <laughs> to play, so I'm going to say that legit. Um, probably, I have had many, I so I've toured in America so much, and, like, it's been, like, the tours that I've done there have been life-changing, so, like, I've seen like insane, beautiful places, and like it's just such an intense country, you know. I've been there. I was there when Trump got elected president as well. Just touring as an outsider, watching all that stuff happen, seemed to me like very, very strange. Sort of um, when you feel like your your life is an actual like story, you know, like it's it's not real. Um, so that kind of things happened on tour there. I actually really loved going to Australia. It was um, probably my most enjoyable um, tour, and just like so, it was super exciting to to go that far. Far, you know, like one of the best things about being in a band is that you you get to travel um, so much. And um, I really enjoyed being that far from home, but also meeting a ton of Scottish people who live in Australia who love to watch Scottish <laughs> bands, which I find so funny. <laughs> Um, they 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 said to me that they don't get a lot, and I think they they might we were probably same sort of vibe where Frank Rabbit were on tour the couple of weeks before, and we also shared a touring company over there. So um, the, the every show that we played was like kind of the same sort of like setup, and um, all the Scottish folk had were just felt like they were being spoiled because they'd seen two Scottish bands in the space of a couple of weeks and they obviously go like a year without seeing anybody so um yeah that that was really nice um to to do that tour well maybe Australia and New Zealand is the only well, place yeah, play this year so. but they are kind of <laughs> <laughs> just ask Novak Djokovic how it's like going to Australia he's not very happy at the minute sort of thing um so, uh, again, sort of my own interest, I think I saw you supporting, again, the Foo Fighters at Murrayfield. I think that was the first time I saw. I mean, what's the connection? When you go, you play in Murrayfield, which is, you know, a massive stadium. I mean, how does, do, you, do you feel much of a connection to the crowd in those big events compared to a lemon tree or, you know, somewhere else, in, you know, go to Academy or something? It must be hard, I always think. The interesting thing about playing... Um that show that I didn't realize until I played a show that big is that you actually only see the crowd up to like 10 rows back or something. And then it turns into like, yeah, like nothing. Like you can't see that. So like, (laughs) you know that those people are there, but you can't strictly like see that far. And especially me who I'm ashamed to say, I'm actually so blind. I wear glasses mostly, but I never wear them on stage because I'm like, I'm too cool for that. So like I actually can't see very far, um, so yeah. So it kind of maybe it's kind of good though because you don't get freaked out so much if um, you can't see okay. you know seventy thousand people in front of you or however many it is. But um, what I really enjoy is um, 
I enjoy the capacity that's maybe like 400 is like but it's like if it's yeah. a four four five hundred folk in a room which is probably like size of maybe lemon trees a wee bit smaller or like um i like yeah. this venue yeah. in um is it southampton called the joiners and it's like so old school but like every time we play there it's like all the people who are in the room are invested so like when you've got like a couple of hundred people but everybody is jumping and everybody is singing and everybody is watching actively and having a laugh with you and you make a funny kind of like sideways joke and like everybody laughs and it's like it's it's not when you get to like a bigger venue it's super exciting because you're like i can't believe that these many people have bought a ticket and care about my music but the bigger the venue gets, the less engagement sometimes you have. So, like, you'll have, like, a great core group of engagement of people who are so into it. But you know that there's people standing at the back who kind of being dragged along to kind of, like, don't really know your music. Or maybe they've heard you, like, you, they've heard you on, um, on, a, on an advert on the telly and they were like, no, that's okay. I'll go and see that. You know, like, it's not, it's not like they, like, I love all three of your albums and my favorite songs are these so i kind of prefer i love i love the fact that i, I when i play you know like i smash like a, a sold out on something i'm like that's that's obviously like such an amazing feeling but i think having the attention and being in that community where everybody is on the same wavelength in a show is more important than how many people are in the room if that makes sense yeah yeah i always my kids always hate me because i always drag them to see the support oh. act um so so we have to be there, you know, early to, to get in, and because I really like the support acts, because often they, often, you know, especially something like Aberdeen in the in the, mm-hmm. you know, in the music hall, you know, there's maybe fifty people looking disinterested, sort of thing. So if I make it fifty one, then I always feel better that you actually watch them, and I always I always buy a t shirt or a record from the support. Well, sometimes act. you can find really amazing stuff, and what you think is like some of your support acts, depending on what band it is, or depending on who the curator of the show is they're they're chosen by the people who are you've come to watch so like for me i like a lot of the times i'll take people on tour that i absolutely love so it's like you know i i remember when i did the tour with estrons and i was like i need this band to come on tour with me because i absolutely love them and everybody that i introduced them to who was at shows a lot of the kind of like people who um watched it when their album came out was like this album is excellent so like that that's me kind of like being like if you like my music, you're probably going to like this as well, you know? So there is a purpose to them. That's why I can't, I can't remember who it was now, but it was, we went to see this, Katie Tunstall, who was really good. And then her support act, I forget now, but she was really good. And I bought a record from her at the end and she said, by the way, you're not from Aberdeen, are you? And I went, no. And she went, is Aberdeen now? Is that quiet? Oh. <laughs> it was. I mean, Michael, you get that. I mean, it was quite polite but I mean it wasn't for Katie Dunstall they were going mad but they just didn't know it and you know it's like a stranger well we won't speak to them just yet sort of thing so but uh, so that was cool but yeah I've always felt so bad she said I said and she's playing Barrowlands the next night I think it's um it depends well, on um, the time and it also depends on the night like you're more inclined to get yeah. people to turn up on a Friday night <laughs> or a Saturday in the weekend and like people you know people work and they, they go eat their dinner and yeah. whatever get their kids to bed before they come out so like they're like 
it makes more sense for them to to turn up later and a lot of the time especially me because i'm late for everything and kind of like i'll turn up at eight and then the support at are walking off and i'm like damn it it's like i i really wanted to see them and i get annoyed because i like miss it all um so yeah there's a whole bunch of factors i mean i've done so many support tours that um the the ones that when we did the garbage ones and we were on super early it was kind of like a bit of a bummer because you know like if only those people had got there sooner maybe they would have liked it but like for example, when we did the tour with Courtney Barnett, like very, very early on, like the the actual pickup oh. of like fan base, like the transfer of fan base there was like huge because I think we yeah. were super suited and also the smaller venue, I feel like people want to turn up early, have a drink, maybe like ch- chat to their pals and like they also want to see. So like they know it's going to be sold out so they want to get in quick so that they can get closer to the front so they can see you know there's nothing worse than turning up at like five to nine and then you're like straddling the door to get in (laughs) (laughs) well i'm always there at the front so i'm half past six so yeah so you're you're okay one thing i was thinking about yesterday so again the story to go on but was how how are young bands going to get through this covid thing because they haven't you know they can't do support acts you know the radio you know here today you know this is the radio tends to be you know uh, top quartile artists it's really hard to get them heard now yeah i mean i just launched an artist during the pandemic so (laughs) yeah ruby games yeah Yeah, exactly so So. i obviously me and um robert where we work i spent work as a record label and um we launched an artist called ruby games um in 2020 in the midst of absolute lockdown which i find hilarious that makes me laugh so much but um we're navigating it on a completely new playing field so like obviously i have like experience of being an artist and doing things a certain way but like we're literally there's no blueprint at the moment so um a lot of things digital we haven't really discussed anything about live or how we're gonna manage that but i do see it in her future but um yeah i guess it's just like thinking outside the box it's hard if you don't transpose well to records like a lot of young bands maybe haven't found their best way of recording their sound yet so maybe their live show is what sells them to a lot of people and you know there's so many bands that you go and see and they'll be like so young and spunky and like full of energy and you're just like blown away by it but it takes them maybe like a couple of tries to get the recording process to reflect that feeling but it's their live show that kind of pulls them along and makes them stand out so you don't have that at the moment so maybe we'll see people making uh, bands making sort of different style of music actually um and obviously at the moment they can't even get into a practice room together really that also is a big deal. And and if they could, no, uh, on, there's that lack of bandwidth, isn't there? There's only a certain amount of um, demand for uh, music in terms of, uh, you know, stream- thing, uh, live, live streaming of um, sets. So you, you're actually in competition with heaps of um, big bands when you're starting out as well, because they, they're at a loose end as well, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, everybody is. And everybody's trying to do streaming and trying to, like, 
gain your attention and also it's like I don't know I get super fatigued by it all um I, I'm not really a fan of like looking at my screen so much so like I find it quite difficult sometimes um but I do like things when they're different so um I'm kind of into it being like something new that I haven't seen before yeah, yeah. Well, say Michael runs a record vinyl shop in Aberdeen, and, and my youngest son likes vinyl. And he he likes to, to listen to that, and he would buy he would buy it. But my daughter, for example, she would just go to Spotify and look at the top fifty and listen to the top ten of that. And you know, she she wouldn't go that bit that bit deeper. So it's getting folk to do that, which is really hard, I think, at the minute. So um, you know, and I, I'm sending around playlists at my work for folk to listen to things, and they're like, who's this person? And then they listen to it and they go, oh, that's quite good actually. So. Um, but I think it's hard. I mean, people consume things differently, don't they? Completely yeah, I'm trying differently to work now, so. out what it is still. I mean, like, I'm kind of like from old school um, place where like vinyl kind of like still works for me and like my style of music and what I make. And I, I really am invested in the creating of it and also the creating of an actual album, which is important to me to have like a certain track listing and for it to flow as if it's sort of a story really you know like same as like chapters in a novel like that's how I think about it but like a lot of ways that we listen to music now or especially on Spotify is um through playlists and you know like a lot of yes. people will just put their playlist on shuffle and to me that's like not essentially how I made the thing so like it's not made to be listened that way um but I think a lot of young younger bands and maybe people who are more business orientated than myself possibly are thinking about that level um and how that they can um change with that time um i don't know if there's a right or wrong answer here i mean like we have to move with yeah. technology and i'm i'm so up for moving with streaming but i kind of don't want to make any compromises on an artistic level to get there yeah, I, I find no, no, Michael, you're no. not a streamer, are you? <laughs> no, no. Well, because I, I think it's um, inequitable, really, you know, um, that there's a, a chunk of bands get next to nothing, uh, uh, bands and artists get next to nothing in the way of um, revenue from it, and a few very big ones make most of the money, yeah. along with record companies, which doesn't seem to me to be fair. No. No, I mean, I, I do I do stream, but as Michael will attest, yeah, I do buy a lot of records as well. Um, it does. And it really annoys me when I look at playlists on Spotify because they're like four hours long. Like the Sunday morning playlist. I think he's got four hours to listen to that, for, which is one thing. So I listen to a record mm -hmm. from track one to ten. Um, and I like I like turning things over as well. Like, you know, the half, halfway point, make a cup of tea and come back sort of thing. But yeah, who knows where it'll end up. But hopefully next year, we'll, or maybe even this year, we'll all be gigging and um, out to a honey blood gig later on. That would be good. Or... I mean, here's hoping. Let's see what happens. I think I mean, we're in January, right? We'll, I'm sure we can look back on this and listen to it in yeah. December and be like, haha, we were so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I tell you, it's funny. We had to go to work in December to, to pick up some files and stuff. And we found in our drawer <laughs> the lottery we did when we left, when we, when we left work in March, oh guessing goodness. when we go back to work. And the latest one was, I think, August. And uh, here we are in January. But uh, the vaccine's coming. I think positive. And um, oh, thank you very welcome. much for your time, Stephen. It's been great. Thanks, Stephen. 
Right, so uh, that was um, Stina Tweeddale, and we, we look forward to getting some um, gigs from her in due course, Terry, and some new Honey Blood material, which sounds like it's on the way. I think so. I mean, one thing she mentioned, obviously, she, was she's is the hoping of, of touring this year, and uh, one of the big, well, not a big gig for her, but it was a big sort of deal, I suppose, was this coming, this coming, coming summer. She was meant to be supporting uh, the Foo Fighters uh, on next parts of a European tour. Um, so obviously issues with that, with the, the Brexit and the visas for, for fans. And that uh, leads us into some album that, reviews. That was very, that was a very slick link, Terry. Two slick and half. Uh, uh, Terry, the, the Foo Fighters new album, Medicine at Midnight, uh, a whole 37 minutes long, and you've managed to listen to the whole lot? I have, and, and I didn't realise. Uh, so at confession time, I bought a copy from your, your good self uh, last week. Uh, I also forgot that um, probably about nine months ago, I pre-ordered the album from their, <laughs> their web store uh, with the promise of a ticket oh. to a gig. You know, uh, uh, well, not pre- no, but the chance to buy a ticket, you know, pre-sale sort of thing, which obviously never happened. And of course, on Saturday morning, uh, a different <laughs> coloured vinyl turned up. So, so, so the Indies only one is a nice uh, see-through yeah. blue, which is lovely. And the uh, Foo Fighters official store one is kind of a, oh God, is it like a purple, it's purpley color, purple motley sort of thing. Um, exactly the same album, there's no differences apart from that sort of thing. So it, it's, it's 37 minutes long, which, which is on the tad. It certainly show. is. Um, I, had a, but I, looked, I listened to one of some of their previous albums over the last kind of week or so, and they're all about 45, 50 minutes, so a little bit short, especially given the time they've had. To record it and I'm not clear when it was recorded particularly because I've seen a lot of he's been everywhere I mean over the last weekend he's been on shows you wouldn't even expect him to be on uh, I think he's going to be on bloody country watch uh, pretty soon <laughs> putting this, al- this album to everybody to to uh, yeah you name it he'll be on Britain's best home cook shortly um, so um, but I think it was rec- I think the plan was that they were going to release this album last year and then do the big 25th anniversary of the Foo Fighters tour, and obviously that didn't happen. So the album got delayed. I assume they finished it off, or, or maybe they had it finished, I don't know. But it certainly feels like an album that's that's written for for gigs, yeah. um, for, play, for playing. Uh, there's nine tracks. Uh, I have to say, I really enjoy it. I did see a really cruel review at the weekend on The Guardian, where they said it was music to take toilet breaks to. Yeah. With the the idea was that you know when they play a new song you go to a to go to the loo or go for a beer sort of thing, which I think is pretty unfair because there's a couple of decent songs on it all the way through. I mean they haven't really, and I mean I like the Foo Fighters and you can't not like Dave Grohl. I mean I'm sitting here looking at the this week's big issue by the way, and he's on the cover of that with a typical Dave Grohl pose, mouth open, <laughs> looking angry. Um, and it's the headline is the voice we need in times like these. So. Um, and he's been on. He has. He was on the one show, I think, and he's been on all sorts of things. But so I think the album has it's got about five or six decent, or maybe five decent tracks on it. Um, certainly, you know, quite sort of funky guitars on. It's got the opening track. Um, I saw someone compared to In Excess. I didn't quite didn't quite get that. To be honest, um, quite dancey. There's a song called Cloud Spotter, which is quite a sort of a upbeat sort of song. Waiting in a war is a typical Foo Fighters, you know. Uh, Slow build up acoustic, and then it kind of rocks out at the end. And despite you know, over the years they recorded albums in different places. There was one called Sonic Highways. They recorded it in eight different parts across America, 
and yet it sounded like a Foo Fighters album. Now that's a compliment. It also I kind of I you know they could have recorded this at home sort of thing. So, um, but I have to say I I, do, I, I like it. I mean, I give it seven out of ten. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I've, I've listened to a whole lot of it, but I mean, I'll say, shame, shame, you 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 couldn't avoid it uh, for the last couple of months. No. Uh, good pop song. Uh, waiting, waiting on a war is very radio friendly. Uh, Medicine at midnight. There's an attempt to do something a bit more atmospheric, and it's probably got a bit more texture than um, some of their chugging Rifola yeah. kind of stuff, like yeah. No Son of Mine. So yeah, I mean, I mean, a Foo Fighters fan is going to be delighted with this, but I don't think they're going to win over a huge number of new fans with it. No, and I think they've got, I think they've got to the, they're, I mean, I'm, I'm not really going to pass comment on the Foo Fighters, but, you know, they've got to the stage in their career now when people go to a Foo Fighters dig, they want to hear the, the, the hits, the songs that they do. I mean, I remember compared to seeing ACDC in Dublin a couple of years ago and they played, you know, they did two-hour gig. It must have been about an hour and ten minutes in. They played an album track from the Rock or Bust album, which was like an obscure track from the middle of Side 2. And we were sitting quite high up in the Aviva, and you could see people leaving. <laughs> <laughs> they were just, yeah, don't know this one. And I, I, the only thing I would say now is that probably by the time the Foo Fighters do play, people will have listened to this record a lot more. Um, and they, I think they will sound good live. I mean, and they do sound good live. What annoys me about the Foo Fighters, though, is when they play live, and I watched their Glastonbury show, must have been over Glastonbury last year, is they talk a lot about how long they're going to play for oh, we're going to play here all night. They're never going to play there all night. So the fans will get excited. They're going to go off at the time. They do their two hours and 20 minutes. They're very professional. Um, but, and I, and I would, I mean, I would go see them live. I mean, I was meant to go see them in Valencia last year, which would have been an amazing place to see them. Beautiful location, hot weather, cold beer. Can't go wrong. And uh, so if you like Foo Fighters, check it out, but it won't persuade you to listen yeah, to them. Yeah, you know, I, I take it that we're going to, you know, be with you all night kind of thing. I mean, you know, I, I would say prove it uh, because uh, there are other people who, who don't promise to do that, like Bruce Springsteen. Any four hours? Well, there you go. Exactly. So, Bruce, yeah, that, that's, I mean, the Foo Fighters generally, when I've seen them, have always had a support act. Um, as Bruce doesn't have a support act when he plays these days, so he, he gets, I guess, he starts about half past six and goes till till bedtime for a four legs sort of thing. So, but, uh... now somebody who uh, don't really uh, bother too much with Horlicks is the Sleaford Mods. Uh, Terry, be fair to say you are a non-fan. Uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I just don't, I just don't get the Sleaford Mods. I mean, I, I, yeah, no, I've listened, I did listen to a bit of this, but. I find myself uh, just sort of scrolling through it very quickly, 30 seconds, which is terrible. You should give it some time. But um, but I, I thought a lot of, I mean, I'm not, you know, prudish, but the language is terrible. <laughs> the way through. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've just, you've, ri- you've written some lyrics to me today, um, which I can't read out of here, but I mean, it's, I mean, <laughs> although he's got putting milk in the bowls of his children's inevitable tears. I mean, that could be Weetabix. <laughs> um, related, but um <laughs> I mean, what, what was your thoughts uh, well, on it? You know, um, Spare Ribs is the name of the album. Um, they're probably, I don't know, maybe five or six studio albums in now, and you're getting uh, some sort of variation on um, what they've done in the past. It's probably, you know, um, it's slightly more expansive in terms of sound. They've got a couple of guest vocalists. Uh, they've got Amy Taylor from Amy and the Sniffers, and Billy Nomades turns up for Mork and Mindy. Uh, there are slivers of you know, recognizable melodies that you know, little bits of the human league and craft work thrown in there. 
Um, so I, I would say it was a, a, a development of what they've done in the past. But from my point of view, it was good to see them coming back with a like effectively a swear-a-thon because they're angry about COVID and class privilege and Dominic Cummings and all these people. And it really does reverberate through the, the, this album. Uh, a lot of the lyrics we can't really go through, but um, something like um, Fish Cakes, the, the final track is as bleak a bit of post-punk um, as you can get. I mean, the public uh, public image limit would be proud of it. It refers to chip shop birthdays. It's it's all about COVID and uh, where the gym was and the garage and rows of stale marriage. No hand was as good as mine. Janet and John and fish cakes fry. And then a, a great line about um, uh, homeschooling. School and houses mangle in bricks and lanes of this jail. And, and that's kind of, you know, you know, a, a fairly uh, bleak take uh, on, on what um, COVID has done to people in the last year in terms of socialisation and that. And, uh, you know, he, he's um, very upset about Dominic Cummings, certainly, and, and uh, we, we can't go through the lyrics, uh, sadly. <laughs> but there's no doubt where he stands on it. So uh, I, I find it enjoyable. I think there's uh, some half-decent tunes on it. And um, uh, one of my mates I go to football with, uh, every year, um, who hates them, uh, actually likes Morgan Mendy and says so he's got a bit of a tune, so that's hyper coming from him. Okay. <laughs> okay, so here's a question for you if you've listened to the Sleepwood Mods and you want to exp- what would you go into? What would be, what would be your, the next thing you listen to after that? Then, I mean, would you listen to something similar or would you try to go down a bit? Uh, I, I, <laughs> I think I mean, it's right uh, up there with them, it really is dialed, dialed up to um, uh, 11 when it comes to um, the, the anger and that, so no. Uh, I, I, I don't think there is anything that follows on from them, and, and that's probably uh, down to the fact that they're very niche. Uh, you either like them or you don't. Um, but uh, there's no denying that they've uh, got some passion and um, uh, vim about yeah. them, I would say. Well, that's that's half the battle, if you show that, I think, sometimes. So so I'm going to talk about Weezer in a second, but I'm, I am going to jump in and punt a couple of other things as well I've listened to this week. Uh, one's a band called, I'd never heard of this band before, called Black oh, yeah. Country New Road. <coughs> now, have you heard, I, I'd never heard of them before, but they seem to be getting good reviews. I listened to that album yesterday, just on streaming, and it was great, apart from one song that was absolutely <laughs> awful. <coughs> I did sort of just literally took off, but I, I really enjoyed that. I thought it was really good. And another album which I, I bought from yourself last week, which is an amazing record, actually. And it's even more so when you realize this person is 20 years old. Yeah. It's Harlow Parks. Um, yeah, Collapsed in Sunbeams, which is, I assumed she was maybe mid 30s, had been around for a while. Um, did a bit of research, found that she lives in London, decided to book into an Airbnb on the other side of town. <coughs> to write and record the album, um, which is an amazing bit of work, I think. Um, absolutely fantastic. There's actually a free download, which has got some like lo-fi mixes of all the songs as well. So, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, there's a song called Hurt, I think, which is a single of it. Um, just give it a listen, and I think you'll be instantly yeah, surprised. I mean, if, if you um, compare uh, her album to the new one from Celeste, which has had a massive push from um, Universal Music, and yeah. yet, you know, it just doesn't move me at all. And it's God, you, you know, here we go. They're looking for something that sounds a wee bit like uh, um, Amy Winehouse, um, you know, that kind of loungy kind of um, vibe to it. 
And, you know, this album would just, you know, knock it for six, really. Well, funny, I, I see, you mentioned I listened to the two back to back sort of thing. They kind of listened to the Art of Parks on vinyl and I streamed Celeste and I just find myself Celeste. I mean, nothing wrong with her either. It's perfectly, you know, decent, well produced, well written, um, but a bit Yeah, soulless, she's got a great voice, but it's just. Uh, the arrangements are, are uh, you know, they're anodyne and uh, it's just not very interesting, really. Uh, no, no. So I would say if you've got some money to spend or you want to spend half an hour listening to Arlo Park. Yeah. Instead, so. Right, Terry. Um, last album today um, is Weezer's OK Human. And there's a bit of a story behind this, isn't there? Because this was not the album they were supposed to be releasing. No, so interesting enough. So it's called okay. It's got a fantastic cover, by the way. So it's very heavily drawn. I don't know who did that cover, but it is fantastic. Interesting enough, on the record itself, and this is where I'm coming to the story. Um, the logo they've used for the Weezer is the Van Weezer logo, which is kind of mismatch of a W with the Van Halen logo. So if you can see what that looks like. Um, but they were meant to be releasing a album. Uh, well, actually, last year, um, as part of the now, what do they call it? The yeah. Hell of a Mega Tour. With um, Green Day, yeah. Boy and Green Day, and that obviously didn't, yeah, didn't happen. So they pushed their, I assume, a tribute to Van Halen album out to sometime this year. I think the tour has been rescheduled for July in America. Um, loosely, I haven't seen anything about dates here. But um, this album, from what I understand, was only announced and released within yeah. a two-week period. Um, so when I listened to it the first time, and I read the, I read the sleeve <laughs> notes. I always read the sleeve notes. Um, and it's obviously been produced and recorded over for quite a long time. There's a lot of strings in it that were recorded in Abbey Road. So it wasn't, it's not just the guy Rivers Como in his, in his basement recording. Uh, it's a fairly professional album. It's even shorter than the Foo Fighters, by the way. It's like 34 minutes long. Um, and it's a very enjoyable listen to. I think the very, the very first lyric, actually, and I'll read it out here. Um, it says, all my favourite songs are slow and sad, um, which is probably a fair thing for the whole album. It's not particularly... There's no, you know, reverb guitars or kind of Weezer sort of uh, pop sensibilities that you would see. It's fairly mellow. I've written down some notes here, which one includes Liberace. Um, <laughs> well, there's a song on it called Play My Piano, uh, which is obviously him with a piano. And I'd, I'd written down, it reminds me of some sort of Liberace type moment with a candle. All oh, right. Well, I, there, I didn't so. get that. I mean, I like the, the, the line in um, Playing My Piano. I haven't washed my hair in three weeks. Yeah. And, uh, the other thing I thought about that track was it was kind of um, the string arrangement uh, was definitely chamber pop and it was a wee bit Eleanor Rigby or Beatlesy kind of sounded in a way that a lot of the other arrangements weren't. I thought it was a good track actually. Yeah, and I, I and I heard something yesterday. I haven't heard Weezer on the radio for a long time, but I heard uh, my stations playing the first song of my favorite songs. That was good. I like Alu Gobi. Grapes of Wrath is good. Numbers. Um, he references Serge Gainsborough on there a couple of times, and um, clearly a very talented individual. They've released a lot of albums over the years, um, and you know whether this one was just stuff that he had in the locker, pulled it out, um, stuck it out as a as a short stop. I, I don't, I don't really feel that, that, that it is that because I mean there are some uh, tracks which are definitely steeped in lockdown. I mean, playing my piano was one of them. And, uh, Alu Gobi, yeah. I mean, the amount of literary references in that, whether it's 1984 or, yeah. or what have you, um, it, it, it's like the, the list of books that a teenager would run through if they were uh, locked in a bedroom for whatever, six months. And then you've got screens as well. Everybody stares at their screen. So 
you know, I, I I thought it was topical. Maybe some of the the um, the melodies had been written in advance, but uh, yeah. Uh, the other side to this, I suppose, is you know you, you you've got um, uh, you know Weezer band that you can do pretty much anything, but you know does this orchestra you know uh, does it improve these songs or does it embellish them or, or would they be better just as a straightforward Weezer songs? I mean, I always think of bands like. Uh, you know they've got a distinctive sound who, who've uh, used orchestras before. The one that sticks out in my mind is uh, Rush's final album, Clockwork Angels, which has got string yeah. string arrangements yeah. on it, which to me are pointless. You know, and I I don't know I I'm not really you know that familiar with all of Weezer's back catalogue, so to me I, I I'm not sure whether this improves the songs or not. No, I mean I I was I was surprised I liked it as much as I did. Um, and I, I think I like the, the orchestral, but I won't say that it's been recorded at Abbey Road, so you know, fairly it's a 38 piece orchestra, so it's you know, it's not it's not a couple of it isn't just a string quartet, so they're fairly sort of thought about it and yeah. done it properly. So, but um, certainly, it's certainly a decent, so we, and a bit of a surprise. I hadn't expected them to release something, um, again before, and maybe the their more rock oriented album won't, won't yeah, appear. But, but I mean, uh, you know, to, to go back to somebody who'd specialize in this kind of music, like uh, Neil Hannon out of um, Divine Comedy, I mean, the, the songs there, mm. um, you know, the the um, integration of um, the orchestra bits or the string arrangements is, is seamless. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not sure that always happens here. Mm. Of course, Neil's finest work was the Father Tim, yeah. Father Ted yeah. theme tune, wasn't it? I think. <laughs> So an enjoyable uh, but short listen, I think, would be fair to say, Terry. I think so. I've had it on a few times. Uh, it's quite nice to sit there and listen to it in the back and just listen to it at work sort of thing. And, and I do one of the Weezer albums that I do like, uh, which I think was, was it a Record Store Day one? Yeah. It was the 80s album, uh, where the cover version. So, which brings you on to something else, which you can go and have a listen to. I think it's only available on those on YouTube at the minute. It's a band called Deco, uh, D-E-C-O. And uh, they've done... Uh, they look the singer looks a bit like the comedian Josh Widdicombe. Um I very like him actually. But what they've been doing is what I call a mashup of, of different songs. So the f- first one they did was Small Town Boy, which was Jimmy Somerville, that was the common arts, uh, and the lyrics of Wonderwall. Okay. And it, it and it works it works very well actually. It's really, really good actually. They then did uh, What's Going On, the tune of that with Marvin Gaye, with the lyrics of Wannabe <laughs> by the Spice Girls. <laughs> Uh, and that works okay as well. And then the most recent one is uh, the, the the tune of Don't You Forget About Me, Simple Minds, uh, versus the lyrics of Robbie right. Williams' Angels. Um, and I don't know if it's a promotion, because they, they do their own stuff as well, but they've done three of these in about a week. And uh, I mean, certainly the Small Town Boy one is, is brilliant. I mean, the Wonderwall fits perfectly into it. In fact, I played it to my wife and she didn't even realise she listened to Wonderwall lyrics until halfway through because she likes small town boy sort of thing and that also fits into a tv show i watched which is it's a sin by the way i'm not sure you've seen any of that but um very dramatic uh well, very good actually sort of expose of 80s um sort of yeah, culture. yeah look, these mashups um, yeah. i mean people have been doing them for years I, I can remember i think one of the first ones i heard was yeah. uh the who's baba o'reilly uh, which was mashed up with uh like a virgin wasn't it um the madonna song but i mean that's Sorry, still, yeah. it's been around for a wee while tony would be my observation yeah, yeah, it is, but it's, it's fun to listen to. Now, I wrote something down in my book here, and I see if you remember this right. Um, I wrote on Hooked on Classics. Uh, unfortunately, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Which was 
basically classical music. Yeah, like a, a clap beat. beat yeah. Like, yeah, which was dreadful. And uh, so I went. I spent yesterday looking to a few of those actually, and I'm sure I have these singles. Um, but that, no, that's it's not it's obviously that must no, be no, like uh, 70s, 80s, or? early 80s. There was a whole 80s, okay. series oh, of these um, things. It started with the Beatles one, didn't it? There was like a kind of Beatles mashup with with a a, a, a clap track yeah. to it, and this followed on from it. Sadly, <laughs> I mean, I think these things are very easy to, to do these days. But these guys obviously play it. I think they're a four-piece band, um, and it's worth just going to YouTube, search Deco, or on on Twitter, is where I found it, and you'll have a list. Let's listen to the first one. And uh, it's fairly pleasant when you spend sort of three minutes. Rather you than me. So. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> so any any good releases coming up? You've yeah, Mogwai's uh, coming up. Uh, we've got uh, this new album from Blank Mass in, in a couple of weeks, A Winged Victory of the Sullen. Um, I, I think a lot of the major labels are keeping their powder dry um, in anticipation of um, some type of um, return to live music. So uh, I, I think once again this year we're probably going to have the final six months of the year will be when a lot of the major releases come out rather than the first six. I did see a story about Adele um, where somebody had come, because obviously, I, don't, I mean, Adele, I can't remember the time, how long ago she released her last album, <clears throat> but they, they caught like, her PR media people said Adele would not be releasing a record during the pandemic sort of thing. So now I kind of thought it was a bit strange. I'm sure fans would love to hear some Adele music. And it would sell by the bucket load in the pandemic or not. Uh, and I don't think she would need the live revenue to to make it worth a while. But um, maybe there's maybe she wants to leave it in a more up, upbeat sort of thing. But I guess you're right, a lot of bands will still kind of hold off. Um, and I guess we don't really know if this, I mean, obviously Glastonbury's done for the year. Uh, will we see more festivals and tours just getting pushed back again? I think so. Well, I, I was listening to that um, long interview with um, Alex Lifeson from Rush that... Uh, uh, I sent you a link for earlier, and, okay. and he, he was saying that uh, he thought this year would be a washout in terms of big tours. So, uh, I guess he probably knows what he's talking about. Okay, well, I look forward to Bogwai on Saturday night, though. So that should be good. Yeah, absolutely. Right, that just about wraps it up for this week. Uh, Terry, we'll be back again before you know it, I guess. All right, good. That was great fun, and have a listen all the usual places. And um, yeah, till the next, next time. time, time right. Right.